When federal agencies make financial grants to science and technology researchers, scouring their proposals for possible conflicts of interest is a big part of that process. But some agencies are focused on financial conflicts and less on guarding against the risks of new scientific discoveries being sent to potential foreign adversaries. That appears to be the case with the National Institutes of Health. That's according to the Government Accountability Office. For more, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu spoke with the Acting Director for Science, Technology and Assessment and Analytics at the GAO, Candace Wright. NIH has had a long-standing um, conflict of interest policy, which we think is certainly a great starting point. Our concern with NIH was specifically that its policy, um, while it called for um, grantees to disclose all financial interests, it didn't specify um, both foreign and domestic. And we think that specifying those things are really important to making sure that uh, grantees are aware and the universities are aware of all of the types of information that they, that needs to be disclosed. And so, uh, you know, we, we made a recommendation to NIH that it really needed to update its, its policy, particularly its conflict of interest policy, to ensure that um, grantees are aware to disclose both financial as well as non-financial conflicts, and then also emphasizing, you know, foreign and domestic interests. Um, since our report issued in, in December 2020 when we made that recommendation, NIH has taken steps to update uh, certain applications and forms um, to have grantees more fully uh, disclose non-financial interests, um, including uh, foreign activities and resources, but we also think that they should take the next step of in updating their conflict of interest policy as well. Yeah, as I understand it, NIH's position on this, at least initially, was that, look, we're already requiring everybody and telling them they, they must disclose all conflicts of interest, which in their view would include foreign and domestic. Maybe say a few more words about why GAO thinks that's not adequate. Right. So at the time when NIH first developed its policies, um, you know, the, there, there was a great um, emphasis on domestic um, interests. However, uh, concerns around foreign influence and in federally funded research has continued to grow over the last few years, especially as um, there's greater international collaboration. So we think it's really important that uh, given the changing circumstances, that the policies and the requirements uh, explicitly define what it is that uh, needs to be disclosed so that there isn't any question. So yes, one might um, you know, think that it's, it's certainly plausible and understandable um, that when you say disclose all interests, that that would include both foreign and domestic. We just think that given the current environment where there is this great concern um, and increasing concern about foreign influence in federally funded research, that it doesn't hurt to take that added step to to explicitly state what the issues are so that all um, involved in the research community, you know, are clear about what, what needs to be uh, addressed and what the concerns might be. And NIH certainly is not blind to these risks. As you pointed out in your testimony uh, last week, I believe you characterize their position as, as being aware that there is, quote, a systematic failure to disclose by participants in certain foreign talent recruitment programs. Those programs, I think, are a subset of the overall potential for foreign influence. But can you say a little bit about what those programs are and why they're a particular threat here? 
Yeah, so this is something that um, has come up quite a bit um, and has been widely reported. Um, you know, at GAO, we haven't looked explicitly at these um, foreign talent recruitment programs, but certainly throughout the course of our work, here, heard a great deal of concern about them. You know, for example, the Office of Science and Technology Policy has reported on this and noted that these programs, you know, certainly a number of them do exist uh, for legitimate purposes to aid other countries in recruiting um, you know, science and technology experts in certain fields. However, there are some countries that are using these programs as a way to um, get uh, access to U.S. research um, by having um, people participating in these programs and providing them salaries and other benefits in exchange for sharing information about, um, you know, what they're learning on through participation in various U.S. research uh, efforts. And so these uh, countries might be using these, these um, programs programs and researchers who are participating in these foreign talent recruitment programs uh, to be able to di divert um, information that is coming from uh, the research that they might be involved in, diverting intellectual property, di diverting knowledge, and other kinds of things like that, that could then uh, serve to undermine uh, the integrity of U.S.-funded research. We've also seen um, in past years, or, or I should say heard in past years, that there's been um, you know, a, a great deal of, of interest uh, for researchers to participate in these, in these kinds of programs. Con they have been in the past considered to be prestigious, but now certainly with more awareness that these programs uh, could be used to divert uh, U.S. research, um, you know, there, there's a little bit more concern making sure that we have you know, better awareness about these programs and who may be participating in them. I will say that just participating in the program in and of itself may not be um, problematic, but it's important that that information be disclosed so that the universities um, and agencies funding these research um, you know, have the full awareness of, of people's involvement, their affiliations, uh, so that they can make decisions about um, you know, whether um, you know, the researcher should go forward given some of these kinds of um, affiliations with foreign talent recruitment programs. Right. And, and, and it seems to me at least one of the issues here is, you know, NIH or any agency can do a perfect job of, of doing due diligence while it's reviewing grant proposals. But once the check is out the door and the grant has been made, it's sort of up to the universities to do the policing work on this, right? Because they're on the ground and NIH or the, the grant making agency isn't. So so what what should NIH be doing to better equip universities to, to be those eyes and ears and, and watch out for potentially harmful things going on. Right. So we certainly um, found that the uh, NIH uh, relies on the universities to identify any potential financial or non-financial conflicts and to mitigate them. Uh, you know, we think that it's really important for the agencies to make the universities aware of, you know, what the current uh, threat environment is, what the potential risks might be, and working with them to be able to identify it. In the course of our work, we actually spoke with a number of um, principal investigators who lead research at various universities that are receiving grant funding, and a number of them found or 
or excuse me, told us that uh, you know they weren't uh, certain that they had the tools and the knowledge to be able to identify these kinds of foreign talent recruitment programs, and some of them didn't even know that they existed. So we think that there's certainly a responsibility for the agencies to be making the research community aware of what the threats are and the risks so that they can uh, you know, be equipped with the appropriate information to, uh, to help manage those risks. And last thing before we let you go, Candace, I, we, we've focused a lot on NIH here just because that was the focus of your testimony last week. But as you alluded to, this is based on a broader report GAO did late last year where you looked at this issue across several different agencies. Are there agencies that are doing this better than others? Are there best practices that, that kind of emerged from that work as you looked across the government? So we actually looked at the Departments of Defense and Energy, as well as NASA, NSF, and NIH um, for the report that was issued in December. And by and large, we found that NIH and NSF um, you know, were among the agencies that had agency-wide policies, um, certainly NASA as well. Um, DOD and uh, DOE did not have agency-wide policies, and so as such, we made uh, recommendations that they really think about, um, you know, developing agency-wide conflict of interest policies to help address this issue. So the agencies really vary. I would certainly say, you know, we thought it was good that um, NIH, NSF, and NASA all had those agency-wide conflict of interest policies, and we made some recommendations around strengthening those policies, as well as strengthening their efforts to address Uh, how to enforce these policies, and also how to communicate information um, to the broader research community so that they are, um, you know, equipped with with the necessary tools and information and resources to help address this issue. Candace Wright, Acting Director for Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics at the GAO, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, 
uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deterred me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership 
was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of this big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.